Thanks for listening to the Standing Together Ministry Podcast. Our desire is to create a multi-generational conversation in the independent Baptist movement while standing together for truth. The following is a teaching portion from the first ever Standing Together Ministry Summit in September of 2018. We would love to see you at the next summit on April 1st and 2nd at Franklin Road Baptist Church of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can learn more and register at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Now, prepare to grow as you listen to this episode of the Standing Together Ministry Podcast. Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, the Revelation chapter 3, and while you're doing that, I, I want to thank uh, Pastor Gillett for his uh, excellent leadership. I've been uh, conducting meetings for most of my ministry, and I, I would just simply say that uh, the organization and the prayer and, frankly, the turnout for this very first meeting is, uh, is an amazing uh, touch of God uh, on your life and the life of the committee and those that have worked, and thank you all for coming. I, um, I appreciate Brother Gillett for a lot of reasons, but I look back to my right and I see Brother Barber and Brother Weaver, uh, two very, very faithful men of God, uh, biblical Baptists, um, faithful soul winners, balanced fundamentalists, whatever terms you want to use. And what I love about Brother Gillett is the fact that he gives such deference to them. And I love the fact that they, of course, support him, but He's not here to carry out every idiosyncrasy, and millennial pastors aren't interested. We understand all that. But, but he intends to honor the heritage. And I don't see that in sometimes in our, in our younger pastors today. It's almost to rewrite the heritage seems to be the playbook. And I want to commend you, Brother Gillett, not, not for trying to please men. You're trying to please God, but the Bible says that you're to, that you're to make your father's friends, your friends. The Bible teaches the, the practice of, of honor that I see in your life. So thank you for having that spirit, and thank you for hosting this conference. I heard of a young lady that was pulled over by a police officer, and, and he walked up and had his ticket book out, and she said, well, doesn't a girl get a warning? And he said, you've had warnings all day long. There's these little signs that say 55 all along the road. <laughs> And uh, we don't want today to be just about the warnings, but the other side of it is we don't want to just see the trends that we see today and, and not be aware and not receive the warnings. In fact, the Bible commands that biblical preaching involves reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And in a day when the consumer wants just the exhortation and preachers are willing to give that, uh, we of all people as preachers should say, I sometimes need to hear you know, some reproving and, and uh, I need to be reminded. And I know I do in my life. And so I appreciate so many of the things that I've heard today. Revelation chapter 3 and uh, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich 
and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thy salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. By the way, I sometimes get weary of people saying that fundamentalists aren't loving enough. Some of them aren't, but sometimes a strong message is, is an indicative of true love. Jesus said, I'm speaking to you this way because I love you. And as many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time to have a few moments before the end of this wonderful day. Thank you for the practical instruction, the wonderful spirit. Thank you for the history. Thank you for the context that we have received today. Help me in these final moments to be used of you and to say that which you'd have me to say and to withhold from saying things you would not want me to say. Fill me with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we approach Revelations chapter 2 and 3, we observe the messages of the Lord to the church, to the churches of Asia Minor. And I personally believe there are probably three ways that we can approach and interpret these particular passages. I think, first of all, we would all agree that these were seven literal churches of Asia Minor. And so we're reading letters that were written to those uh, first century churches. I believe, secondly, that the literal conditions of the seven churches are reflected in churches throughout church history. So uh, the Word of God is always relevant and that these conditions that we see in those early churches are with us today in some, in some extent and to some extent. And so uh, they provide for us somewhat of a panorama of church problems, church strengths, and so forth. Thirdly, and I, I believe that these seven churches could serve as Uh, types of seven stages of church history. Now, I'm going to just step aside and say that this is is my preference. I know that millennials like to tell me, you know, we're tired of preferences and we're going to push back from now on because that's what we do. And so uh, I just want to say, you don't have to push back. I'm admitting up front, this is my preference. This is what I think could be, okay? So, So understand that I do think just as I read it, I'm not saying that this is infallible, but I am saying that you can, as you look at these churches, discern certain stages of church history uh, since the very first of the uh, the churches. For example, at the church at Ephesus, we see uh, a fallen church, or what could be called the post-apostolic church. The the church at Smyrna, uh, which opposed the pagan Caesars, we see there the picture of the persecuted church. Uh, The church at Pergamos, uh, uh, we see there the doctrine of Balaam, and you could refer to the church there as a patronized church. The church at Thyatira, uh, we hear of that particular area having the women of Jezebel and the pagan feast days, and and you could liken that perhaps to the papal period, the papal church. Uh, The church of Sardis could be likened to the period of the Reformation. This was a protesting, this was a church that had uh, that stand. The church at Philadelphia would be a picture of a very fervent church, such as in the days of Moody, Wesley, and Finney, practical and revived. And following that line to the church of Laodicea, I believe you can see much in the way of a picture of the modern day church. Uh, I believe that there are definitely uh, each of these types of churches or characteristics from these churches found today, but generally speaking in Christendom, 
I would not feel it would be a stretch to say that we see a lot of Laodicean churches in the day in which we live. Now, Laodicea was a wealthy inland city about 40 miles from Ephesus. They boasted, obviously, a famous school of ISAV. They uh, were somewhat of a cosmopolitan city. And we learn a little bit about the philosophy of this church when we read verse 14 where it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. I want you to take note of that. Uh, It is called the church of the Laodiceans. It is not referred to as the church of Laodicea or the church at Laodicea. It is referred to as the church of the Laodiceans. Just mark that in your mind. This was a church that had forgotten its ownership, right? The Bible says in Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed, say it with me, the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So instead of saying, as he had to all the other churches, to the church of Laodicea, he says to the church of the Laodiceans. They had come to the place of thinking this was their church. This was a community church. This was a church that they had some privilege over, if you will. And I believe that is further seen when you study the etymology of the word Laodicea. Uh, The word laos, meaning the people, decay, meaning rights. So this was the church of the people's rights. This was the Laodicean church. This was the church uh, that felt they had the right to insert their philosophy uh, into the mix. And we'll see that their emphasis was a church that emphasized felt needs, perceived needs, over what Jesus Christ had given with respect to his commission and his desire for the church. Now, we've all heard about and read about the marketing of the church, the seeker-sensitive church day in which we live. And I think we can just quickly pause to say that the idea that this is the people's church has come full circle. And there are many today that are, that are literally tailoring their church after uh, what the cultural whims might be. And I, I understand that there are certain things, we could all talk about sound systems and, and screens, and there are certain things that we can adapt that are not sinful and so forth. But to, to have a church that has as its target uh, the people rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, is always going to be a church that gets off track. So this was the church of the people's rights. Now, I just want you to notice some things, and lots of this is in the outline there, and some is not. I want you to notice, first of all, the concern that our Lord had for this church. He says, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, how many of you would just, by way of introduction as we begin here, how many of you would agree with me that if the Lord has a concern for the church, we ought to be concerned as well? I mean, honestly, we can, I can stand here in the power of the Spirit and try to encourage and try to sway biblical influence. But honestly, if the Lord came right into your room physically and spoke to you, would you listen? And I believe that he had a great concern, the Lord's concern. And he says here in verse 15, he says, I know thy works. By the way, he knows our works. He knows our hearts as well. And he says, I am the amen, meaning I'm the final word. The final word. And the final word is not your alma mater. We get that. By the way, you don't have to say, I don't care what my alma mater says. What kind of insecure pastor says that on Twitter? I don't care what my heritage said. I mean, really, honestly. It's, you don't have to care, but you don't have to tell everybody you don't care. 
But when the final amen comes down from the Lord, we better care about what he's saying. He says, this, this is what I, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. And I say that his word and his verdict should mean more than the church growth expert on the left or, or the fiery personality on the right. The church at Laodicea had problems. They were neither hot nor cold. They had a cold spring that ran into Laodicea. They had a hot spring that ran in. Unfortunately, by the time it got to the city, it had turned lukewarm. So the term was known to them. And I believe as you uh, study uh, the Laodicean church, and as you consider the concept that there are several symptoms of this sickness that we see in the church, and I want to mention a few of them. First of all, I believe one of the symptoms of the people's church is that there is a loss of appetite for the Word of God. I was having a talk with, with a, a well-known author, I won't mention his name, but I was talking to this man and, and, and I asked him about some, some churches in our area, large churches in Southern California, and this man was not independent Baptist, and I said, what do you think about this church? I mean, they preach the gospel, and he said, I'm glad they preach the gospel, but he said, honestly, Brother Chapel, if they didn't have the band, I really don't think they would see the crowd. There's an attractional aspect to many of our churches and especially the churches that are heavily into programming and in the sense of music, and especially I speak here uh, in the sense of the the, uh, rock and roll style, that sometimes is more attractional than the word. And there's a loss of appetite just for the preaching of the word. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Let me just say that I still believe Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night is a great pattern. So I don't like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, okay? Uh, it's like the lady that went to Moody and said, uh, I don't like how you give that altar call. I just, I don't like how you do your evangelism. And he said, I don't like how I do my evangelism either. How do you do your evangelism? She said, I don't do it. He said, then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> here's, here's my point. The Bible says, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. And to prove this issue of a lukewarm church having an appetite that is not what it once was, we're seeing today churches that are canceling preaching times, no longer considering revival meetings at all, not even attempting to have a prolonged time of seeking the face of God. And with really noble reasons like family time. And I, I, don't, I cannot boast in whatever's happened in my life to the glory of God and Brother Van Gelder and others have been far, far blessed. But I want to say I have four kids that went to the altar in purity and are serving the Lord in ministry today. And I want to say that when we start changing service times and complete modes, and I speak to to some of the younger pastors, you're gambling. If you think changing Sunday night in God's house for whatever other thing you're doing with the family, if if you want to make that statement about the Word of God, I'm just saying, be careful with that, because I believe that the preaching of God's Word is central. I believe it's necessary, and and the fact of the matter is, home groups that take place on on the evenings are averaging about 17 to 23% of Sunday morning attendance, and if you'll get up and get your pulpit on fire, I think you'll average 50% or better on a Sunday night. You say, well, that's your preference, Brother Chapel, and Sunday school isn't in the Bible. Thank you. Robert Rakes invented the term in 1887 during the plague in England because he wanted to teach kids how to, 
how to read. I've been to the monument of Robert Rakes. I know where Sunday school started. I understand all of that. So let's just get really biblical and go to daily in the temple and from house to house. How's that for you? I'm just saying, yeah, there's preferences on what nights. What I'm talking about right now is not what night or even how often I'm talking about the content. My people and your people, and they're the Lord's people, need the Word of God. But the lukewarm church wants entertainment. They want, they want Christianity light. Uh, 54% of Christian millennials are watching online videos about their faith and their spirituality. In 2017, more than half of the Bible readers use internet and smartphone to access uh, these bi biblical texts or Bible studies. I recognize there's a lot on the internet. I just happen to believe that God has simply chosen the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. We're never going to replace it. We're never going to replace gathering around, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves. So there's a loss of appetite in the lukewarm church. And then there is, secondly, a lessening of value for doctrine. Now, I want you to see something in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. Now, gold that is tried, I believe, can speak of good, sound doctrine. He said, I want you to, I want you to take Psalm 19, more to be desired are they, speaking of the statutes of God, uh, than gold, yea, than much fine gold. In keeping them, there is much reward. Now, the Laodiceans had it the other way around. They were drawn to their riches and their materialism, but Jesus is saying, I want you to take the gold that's tried in the fire. Instead of looking at the material, I want you to look to the spiritual. Instead of looking at what you can get, I want you to look at what God has given. And the desire uh, here is a desire for the material rather than the spiritual. Jeff Amsbaugh, in, in writing about this matter, said, the desire to become amiable to the world that lives in hatred to Christ and his followers creates a slippery slope. In fear of looking crazy to a fallen world, wide-sweeping doctrinal concessions have been made. Keller, for example, states that biological evolution is neither ruled in or ruled out. Thus, Keller's views on creationism are not strictly literal. And here's one example that Amsbaugh gives of someone that in the attempt to seem intellectual and in the attempt to have intellectual evangelism or whatever they want to call it, uh, there, there are concessions that are being made, even literally on the doctrine of creation, and yet you'll see young fundamentalists just tweeting these authors and tweeting these authors while disdaining sometimes their own heritage. And, and what I'm saying is that sometimes in that reactionary moment, they're actually unintentionally perhaps, lessening doctrine. You say, well, some authors do say some good things. I recognize that, but we need to be careful about promoting anybody that would deny something as sacred as the literal creation of the world by a God who is able. Look it. If you want to know your heritage, look at your ordination certificate. Look at your Bible college diploma. You want to know your future? Look at your Twitter feed. I'm not going to deny my heritage. I could spend the rest of the day telling you about warts on the nose as a fundamentalist. But you see, I, I had to come to a place of crisis in my life in 1991 where I determined, was this about my mentors or was this about my faith? And, and so... I'm not here today, I've had preachers in the past try to tell me what to read, what not to read. I'm not telling you what to read and what not to read. What I am telling you is that the Laodicean church is a church that is 
setting aside and lessening doctrinal value and importance and sometimes promoting singers and authors whose doctrine is terrible, stuff that I might read in my study but I would never send out within the church family. There's a lack of discernment in doing that. Recent years we've seen young Bible-believing Baptists attending conferences at Pentecostal churches like Hillsong or Calvinist conferences like T4G, and you say, well, they're not, they're not lessening doctrine. No, they have as much as we have. It's just not all the right doctrine. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. But I'm not an expert on music like Brother Van Gelderen, but I'll tell you this. Say, what's the problem with Hillsong? They're Pentecostal for Pete's sake. They actually wrote one song that's all verses from the Psalms, by the way. I found that out, so you can't, it's hard to preach against that, but it's all Bible. I'm just saying I'm not going to run off to a conference with people who believe in tongues, they don't believe in eternal security, and sit around drinking vodka with Justin Bieber to tell me how to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to hang around people who believe in a limited atonement or believe in a works for salvation. The Bible says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. You know the verse, the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap unto themselves teachers. You, know, you want to know a good uh, illustration of the teachers I believe he's mentioning here is exactly what Sam Davison said. You know what they, what they are? There's no application. Application's not comfortable. It's not comfortable for me I, look at I can teach all about tithing. It's not comfortable to pass out the cards. <laughs> I've never had one building program in our ministry where I haven't had people get mad and leave the church, not once. And it was never about architecture. It's not comfortable to challenge people. It's not comfortable to preach about uh, the reality of hell. Teachers having itching ears. So there's this lessening of doctrine. There's less doctrine. I think of one of these pastors by the name of Brian Houston. He was asked just a yes or no answer on the subject of homosexuality and such. And he said, quote, the real issue in people's lives are too important for us just to reduce it down to a yes or no answer. Gentlemen, if we can't give a yes or no on homosexuality, we're not even a real preacher. Less doctrine, less preaching. But the Bible's simple when it comes to this. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And then, of course, there's less soul winning. So I started trying to understand the gospel-centered movement, the missional movement, all these words. I, I'm not against rescue missions that preach the gospel. I'm not against giving out food and helping the hungry that preach the gospel. One of the books I read said, well, being both gospel-centered and community-centered might mean running fewer evangelistic events. And I said, then I'm not interested. I mean, they literally put that in print. I'm not interested in anything that is lessening the evangelistic fervor. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He said, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And we're running off to conferences and we're running off into these missional ideas and concepts and fewer and fewer are soul winning and witnessing and the churches that are growing are trading members. We've got to have a revival of winning and... By the way, I'm not some you know, cranky fundamentalist up here trying to hold on to some kind of historical tradition. 
This is not about anybody's platform. There's three college presidents here and people here from at least 10 Baptist colleges that we know of. It's not about that. This is about biblical principle. What I'm saying to you is that you can have a soul-winning, biblically balanced church in this day, and we must have it if we're going to continue forward holding to the fundamentals of our faith. I read this article on the decline of the Southern Baptist just recently in the Church Leaders magazine talking about the uneasiness of the traditional Southern Baptist leaders as they have seen now this new Reformed theology coming in. And it said, although the nominee promoted the election, neither, neither nominee promoted the election as such, the election became in the eyes of many a choice between the younger Reformed leadership or the older traditional Baptist leadership. But here's the problem. Our young men are tweeting out and inviting in and following after the young reform leaders, not the old soul winning. Let's just take a moment and just be honest that Jerry Vines was a soul winning Southern Baptist pastor. He told me not long ago on the phone, he said, I fought my whole life for the inerrancy of the conviction, uh, convention. We won that battle, and now he said, quote, we're losing it to the Calvinist and the Christian rock music. That's not me, Mr. Independent Baptist. That is a Southern Baptist leader. The burden that an older Southern Baptist leader would see in that tradition going towards all of these missional concepts and all the Reformed theology is the same burden that some of us have today when we see people running off and venerating all of this. And listen, you can learn from just about anybody, but nearness is likeness. And that's why I'm glad that we can gather here today and just pull back for a minute and think about who are we reading, where are we going, what are we tweeting, and what is that saying to the teenagers in your youth group that are called to preach? And what does that say to someone? Uh, look, it, I know it's not easy to be a Baptist. I know it's not easy sometimes to speak against the charismatic movement. I understand all of that, but we have to decide who we are and then find that and stay true to the Lord in that area. Look, it, we're either going to be a called-out assembly or a blend-in assembly. And that's really largely in part due to whatever heart you have as a preacher. So there's a loss of appetite. There's a lessening of the valuing of doctrine. And then there's a lapse of convictions regarding holiness and fellowship. Now I want you to notice this in verse 18. It says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. This, this gold is not the material gold. This, I believe, is God's righteousness and God's truth. And then he says, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. I believe white raiment to speak of personal holiness. And I believe he's counseling this Laodicean church. He's saying, I want you to come back to this matter of, of personal holiness, and I'm not going to preach on personal standards here. I've never felt it's my place to do that in someone else's church. I'm just here to preach on this subject, that our God is a holy God, and his bride should be distinct in this world today. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And you know the scriptures teach us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're living in a day when many are literally using their liberty as an occasion to the flesh. You study Galatians chapter 5. And you see God says, use not your liberty as an occasion of the flesh. And you, you, you study out Galatians 5 and you'll see on the one hand, you'll see the, the, the legalism, the pharisaicalism that, that many despise today. And we understand that. 
And we know that we're not going to go back and, and, and earn our salvation through some form of, of legalism. We're not going to find our, our righteousness through some form of works. But by the same token, we see another end of the spectrum. Because those that are tired of the legalists have come all the way now over to license. And so now they want to argue about what is wrong with watching uh, a movie filled with cursing and nudity. And I can do this. I'm under grace. And I could give you many, many illustrations and I won't. But, but this crowd has of, of men that had got burned in a Bible college or some mentor became immoral or whatever, all of a the sudden they're tired of the religious uh, rigors of legalism and now they've come to the extent of using their liberty in the realm of license. Why did God save us? Why did he give us our liberty? You read Galatians 5.13. So that by love we can serve one another. Don't run from some bad experience all the way into a life of license. Stop and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. By love, serve one another. It's amazing to me that those that get into this hyper-grace over here, or whatever term you want to call it, antinomianism, whatever extreme, wind up becoming hyper-pharisaical themselves. Constantly belittling fundamental people. Constantly acting like, well, we have some great new revelatory truth, and, you know. I was speaking to a young man the other day, and I said, would your pastor have ever preached on a platform with that guy? Oh, no. Well, does your pastor use the King James? Oh, yeah. And I said, now, you came to West Coast, and what, would I have, oh, no, you wouldn't have, would King James, oh, yeah, and I asked him two or three tests like that. I said, is there some new rain falling, some latter rain that I'm missing then? We don't get a pass because we're a particular generation of people. And I mean, some of these are even saying, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that over there anymore and trying to throw out little Twitter. Hey, let's have a discussion. What do you think is worldly and what do you think is godly and what about being this Baptist or what about this? And they're kind of saying, I'm free, I'm free. Come on over and be free. My friend, be careful with that freedom. Personal holiness is belittled in those contexts of conversation. Spiritual fellowship, spiritual fellowship becomes something that is not even thought about, and I speak here in terms of who we fellowship with. Spurgeon said, there are some in these apostate days who think that the church cannot do better than to come down to the world and learn her ways, follow her maxims, and acquire her culture. Isn't that amazing that Spurgeon said that? Way back then. In fact, the notion is that the world is to be conquered by our that the world is to be conquered by our conformity to it. This is is not to be conquered by our conformity to it. This is contrary to the Scripture, as light is to darkness. First Corinthians: You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. What was Paul teaching them? You can't be here and acting like a Christian. Go back and act like that. I beseech you, brethren, to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. You know, I've just tried to, to determine what does our church believe and to have people preach on our platform that believe what our church believes. I, you know, somebody said, I don't believe in the term secondary separation. How about this term, wisdom? Do you like that term? It is not wise to have a doctrinal statement that you say is correct and to have anybody on your platform speak who doesn't match your doctrinal statement. So if you don't like ecclesiastical separation, don't call it that. I just call it pastoral wisdom. 
It's the same reason that I've not sat on platforms of ecumenical evangelism. How am I going to win this Catholic guy to the Lord and go sit on a platform with somebody who believes in the tenets of that Catholic faith? It's very confusing, and it's unwise. Now, there are some people that think, well, you know, the fundamentalists just make up terms like new evangelical. <laughs> That's just a Van Gelderen term that he made up, and we, he went to Bob Jones, and they made it up for him. And it's, just for the sake of the record, that term was not coined by angry fundamentalists. Harold Ockengay at Fuller Seminary said, Neo-Evangelicalism was born in 1948 in connection with a convocation address which I gave in the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. He gave it. While reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, this address repudiated its ecclesiology and its social theory, the ringing call for a repudiation of separatism and the summons to social involvement. Listen to me which is exactly what the young and reformed are saying right now. Missional, social involvement. They're, 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 they're walking to the playbook of Harold Ockengay right now. It's exactly what Brother Van Gelderen said, the repeating of this. And the summons to social involvement received a hearty response from many evangelicals. Why? Soul winning's not easy. Confrontational preaching's not easy. It differed from fundamentalism in its repudiation of separatism and its determination to engage itself in the theological dialogue of the day. It had a new emphasis on the application of the gospel to the sociological, political, and economic areas of life. Look, at that all sounds really good. What about the application to the guy that's lost and on his way to hell that needs to be saved? And this is what, what he wrote in 1948 is exactly the platform of everybody who's all worried about the Me Too and all the rest of this. Listen, we're, we, we ought to speak against anybody that's mistreated, and we ought to speak against Westboro Baptists, and we ought to speak against the cults and all these weirdo uh, people out there. I get that, but I'm not going to make my main message affirmative action Baptist church. My main message is the gospel of Jesus Christ have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now think about it, guys. Just think about it. The church at Ephesus. In Revelation 2 and verse 6, Jesus said, But this thou hast, listen, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. The Nicolaitans, that word means the ruler of the people. It, it could refer to something like popery. And what Jesus is saying is, he said, he said, I want to commend you for your intolerance of the Nicolaitans. He commended intolerance. I'm just saying there are some things that we as Baptist leaders should be intolerant of. And we should be intolerant of false doctrine. And we should be willing. There's no unity without doctrinal purity, and there's no doctrinal purity without separation. You cannot have real unity without separation. It's impossible. I, I think of what I observe, and again, now this next little thing is just what I observe. So Brother Folger, if you'll come over here, and Peter, if you'll come over here, maybe Brother Chris, if you'll come over here, and Brother Tyler, if you'll come just up to the platform. I think of this matter as, as we look at this subject of just fellowship and the breaking down. And guys, if you'll just come right across this way, and this is kind of the trend that I see. Come on up, Brother Folger. Just real quickly, because this is cross-generational discussion. On this side, we have a man that I'm going to say represents conviction. 
Uh, this man represents conviction in that he's your home pastor that you grew up under. He's maybe an early mentor in your life. He thundered. He went somewhere and he scraped and he had faith and he built. And he represents conviction. And now he's going to send a guy to Bible college. Uh, and, and he learned so much here. And he, he loved Bible college. But what he really likes to talk about and what really gets him excited is contextualization. That's, that's what he loves. And I said this recently at leadership conference. There's nothing wrong with contextualization. We all practice it. If you teach vacation Bible school and use flannel graph, you're contextualizing for that audience, et cetera, et cetera. When I preach overseas, I try to know where I'm at. But this, this great interest in contextualization, the concern that I would have today is for what I have been calling for some years over-contextualizing. And that is where suddenly we're involved in what could be called syncretism or bringing more and more of the world into the church. And rather than just wanting the gospel to be understood, which we all want that, there's an over-contextualizing, and I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that, because we don't have time, and I think you know what I would mean. But when this young man who's out of this church of conviction is so interested in contextualizing and over-contextualizing, pretty soon he gets a vibe going. Pretty soon he's got a feel on. Pretty soon he's into a mindset of what's important. And I always tell the guys going out of college, listen, it's not about your website, and it's not about the lighting package, and I'm not against lights, and I'm not against websites. But if we don't have the anointing of God, we have nothing. But, he, but suddenly, you know, along the way, this guy, you know, he's kind of feeling his oats a little bit, and he's really enjoying just some, you know, some of these guys are actually playing actual rock music to prove a point. I mean, one guy, you know, played Highway to Hell in a church service just to be relevant. And after a while, he looks over here at his preacher, and he goes, you know, I really like him and everything, but I just, I don't feel as comfortable with him. Look at him over there. Don't feel comfortable with him. <laughs> it's a little awkward. <laughs> and... And, and so the, the overly collaborative feels less attached because suddenly this beca has become more of a feel. He still believes in Jesus and the doctrine, but has elevated this sense of the feel and the emotion. And so over here we have a guy that's into collaboration, and this is the friendliest guy on the block. He's happy. He's very social media savvy. He's just this greatest friendly guy you could ever possibly meet. His doctrinal statement and his doctrinal statement about the same. His doctrinal statement might be about the same. And so, of course, he not feeling as welcome over here with, I mean, victory in Jesus. He's like, that, I don't like that anymore. You know. Take your hymn book. You know. So he looks over here, and this guy's so open and friendly, and he's got an even better vibe and a better feel. And so now... He begins to fellowship here. Here's the deal, though. This brother, some might call new evangelical, is, is also openly fellowshipping with people who believe you can lose your salvation or who use different Bible versions or who are open Calvinists or whatever you want to fill in the blank. And before you know it, this brother here is being introduced to this brother here. And before you know it, somewhere along the line, this guy is going to get a letter that says, it's been real. You can laugh, I get those letters. Because this guy right here is a good fisherman. Right? And you say, well, he believes about the same way we do, and this stuff is just preferential. What I'm trying to say is 
there comes a point where it's not just preferences. Now it gets to a point where we're going we're gonna to platform and we're going to fellowship with people who actually do have different doctrine. And that's where discernment really does matter. Thank you so very much. You say, ah, oh, Brother Chapel, it does, that doesn't happen like that, does not Let's see where new evangelicalism goes. I don't know if you guys can throw this video up. Let's just see this real quickly. President of Fuller Seminary. You guys got sound? And I said, uh, you know, we're, uh, this is a great event. Uh, we, we haven't been friends. Uh, friendship is a new thing. And this is a wonderful development. And I want to say as an evangelical that uh, I want to apologize to my Mormon friends because we've often uh, told you what you believe rather than ask you what you believe. We didn't want to get into, you know, how did the Book of Mormon come into being and was Joseph Smith uh, our genuine prophet of God and all of that. We didn't want to get into the origins of the Book of Mormon. Now, in the early days, Christianity was seen as a cult by the Jews. Right. And uh, Jews no longer think of us as a cult or a sect. Um, and I think we owe the same thing to our Mormon friends. So what you have here in Fuller Seminary, which gave degrees to you know, Rick Warren and many, many others that I could mention, you have the, the concept of collaboration, the concept that is by their statement in 1948, let's get some of the fundamentalists and let's get some of the liberals and let's not be so uptight and let's look for some social good that we can do. Nobody's going to deny the faith overnight. I get that. But direction does matter. And considering the end of a thing matters and your children matter and your grandchildren matter. The modern-day church, like Laodicea, is emphasizing her rights and her freedoms, but not her responsibility. I'm tired of these fundamentalist people telling me what I can watch or what I can do or what I can wear. Okay, I'm sorry. We're sorry. But wait a minute. What is this idea that I can just preach whatever or wherever or no one's going to tell me? We've got to still have the fear of God guiding our hearts. The fear of the Lord is still the beginning of wisdom. Dr. Hudson wrote me a letter. He wrote me many from his deathbed. And he said to me in a letter, I challenge you to take your place in the long line of independent fundamental Baptists who have stood for separation and soul winning. I speak now especially of ecclesiastical separation. Hold the banner high till Jesus comes. Now, I understand I wrote an entire book, The Road Ahead. I talked about independent fundamental Baptists. I don't use that term even out soul winning and so forth. I recognize that there's a context even for those terms. But when it comes to this matter of holding this particular banner high, why would Dr. Hudson say that to me? Why am I saying this today? He said it to me because he loved me. But he said it to me because he loved the truth. And he knew that if I began to collaborate with the wrong people, that through, through time that I would not be the witness that I could be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3 and verse 16, Jesus says, So then, because thou art neither lukewarm, art, art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Amos 3, 3, How can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, I, I see here the concern of our Lord for the church. I want you to notice quickly the condition of the church. Just very quickly, verse 17 Thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Here we see that this lukewarmness manifested in two ways. First, they had a misplaced trust. They said, we have need of nothing. Now, look at 
we've got to recognize that we have need of something, in fact, someone, and his name is Jesus. And we're to be doing the will of God from the heart. And as God increases your finances and the plant and the influence of your ministry, all of us have to be careful to realize, God did this. God brought me here. Look at, we not only need God and his word, we still need older men speaking into our lives. We, we've got to be careful that we don't misplace our trust. It, it was as if the Laodiceans said, thank, Lord, thank you, Lord, we're good. We're rich and increased in goods now. We've got, got everything we need. Is that all we needed was a building? Misplaced trust. Secondly, they had a misunderstanding of success because in, in verse number 17, notice he says to them, thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor. Like a frog in a kettle, they didn't know that their church was basically being ruined. God is more interested in the health of your church than in the size of your church. And again, I don't, you might have a great big crowd going on, but I'm telling you, there are churches of 80 getting more done for the world evangelism than sometimes churches of 800. There's a big difference between a crowd and a church. And many of these mega churches that are attracting such a crowd and have such a vibe and it seems so exciting and they're way better than us on the internet and they are way better at us than blogging, but many of them are a crowd but not a church. God has called us to be his church. And he says, I, the Lord, try the hearts. He says, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And as this ecumenical spirit sweeps across our nation, doctrine is often going out the window. Sunday morning messages are being reduced to pablum. I mean, honestly, we have preachers that, you know, that have teaser titles that deal with sexual relations. And I'm not saying you can't preach on marriage. I'm just saying some of the things I see preached on Sunday morning, God bless the dear widow that has to sit through that. And what an idiot that preaches that. There's a place for those things, maybe at a couple's retreat. But it's just a little more dicey, a little more edgy, a little more, hey, look at this, a little more, a little more to the edge, a little more to the edge. You know, can I just say something? There's people in your church that are 80 and 90. They're single moms. You know, we, we really need to recognize that sometimes being successful is not all about the size of our church. And I'm not preaching against growing a church. I'm just saying it's not all about that. And it's not all about the newest and the coolest and the trendiest and the edgiest. It's about being faithful to Jesus Christ. Daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus. So the condition of this church, I mean, you don't like what I'm saying? Just look at the Bible. They were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But notice finally, not only the concern of our Lord, not only the condition of the church, but let's hear his counsel to the church. Verse 18, I counsel thee. Isn't that amazing? I, I have some counsel, Jesus says, for you. The first thing he tells them is, I want you to return to spiritual values. I want you to return. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. You know why I believe we need to return to these values and return to the Lord himself? Very simply, because of our love for Jesus Christ. Okay. Is it, what is it that's motivating us in the ministry? Someone says on the one side, well, I don't want to be motivated just by moralistic teachings. Okay. But on the other hand, let's not be motivated by having something that's big or something that's cool or something that's hip. You know what ought to motivate us? And this is where you come back to a true gospel center. That is the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ constraineth us. 
As many as I love, I rebuke therefore and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent, Jesus says. I love you. He wants us to love him. We love him because he first loved us. And we need to sometimes change our mind about ourselves, humble ourselves. And we've got to be careful of our ego, which stands for edging God out. And I'm convinced sometimes, and I'll show you in just a moment when we finish, that sometimes in our attempt to build a church, we can edge God out. We also should desire to return to God's spiritual values because of our need for God. Our need for God. I don't always like all the terms, even the term fundamentalism. Let me just say, what we need is a return to the Lord. That's what this conference to me is about. Coming back to the Lord. Revelation 2, 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place except thou repent. It's so important that we would come back to this place. So important that we would honestly return to God's spiritual values. And then secondly, Jesus says, repent of your misplaced values. Verse 18, again, he says, and, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and the, and, that the sh- and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Come, Hosea said, return unto the Lord. And may we be very, very careful in this matter of not comparing uh, the best of the ecumenical crowd to the worst of the fundamental crowd. May we get to a place where we say, look at, I just want what God has for me. I want to return to him personally. I want his spiritual riches. Ephesians 3 and 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and that we would return to that holy living or that white raiment. That we would return to God's spiritual values. That we would repent of our misplaced values. Now I, I can tell you, um, we, we have done a lot of innovative things at Lancaster Baptist Church. And sometimes younger pastors say, well, you got thumped for doing some stuff, so I'm just doing some stuff too. So, so let me just say for the record, I did some stuff I shouldn't have done. Now, you know, guys that just looking to, to criticize you for whatever reason, they'll never forget the one thing you shouldn't have done, right? <laughs> for them, that defines you. I don't want something that I did a time or two to define me, nor, nor does any 30-year-old pastor here want that. But I will tell you that I surrounded myself with godly seasoned pastors who lovingly helped me, and there have been many times that I have repented. And not just of a stylistic thing. Sometimes it's been an attitude. Sometimes it's been a jealousy or whatever it might be. We're, we're not going to have revival unless preachers live a life of repentance. It's okay to say, you know, I had that guy in, and boy, that sent a wrong message. It doesn't have to become your pattern. It doesn't have to be your identity. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I, I played that movie, or I did this or that. And, and, and Jesus is saying to this church, you've had some, some misplaced values, and your, your spiritual values have been on the world's things. And, and, and he says, I call you to change your mind about that. And then he says, thirdly, resume with spiritual vision. Anoint your eyes with eyesalve. Blessed are the pure in heart, not by my might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Look at man can preach and man can build, but only the Lord can add to the church, right? And we've got to cleanse our eyes sometimes of the worldly things and ways. And hey, 
the marketing of this world is all around us. And so we get to thinking that you're only going to have success this way or if it looks that way or if it feels this way. That's the way to do it. And it's got to be technological. It's got to be all these different things. And there's a place for much of that. But what I'm trying to say this afternoon is that sometimes God gets edged out of his own church as we're trying all these things. Resume with spiritual vision. We need young men today who will stand unapologetically for the word of God not with a bad attitude, not with a critical spirit, who will preach the word, not just opinion, who will meet one another, who won't be limited to you know, one institutional type of loyalty, who will find out and fellowship with godly men. We need young men who will tweet that which is wholesome and doctrinally sound and be careful that whether you say it's an endorsement or not, it is an endorsement. And you are leading somebody there. And we need a generation of preachers who will once again focus on the gift of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And I'll tell you what's happened is that in today's generation, oftentimes we're focusing on the wrapping package, we're focusing on the bow, and we're focusing on the website, and we're focusing on the colors, and we're focusing on the tech, and we're focusing on the vibe, and we're focusing on the feel, and we've got all the emphasis on the wrapping, and we're not getting the gift out, and the gift is Jesus Christ. And you might not be able to afford a website, you might not be able to paint your building, there may be a lot of things you can't do, but you can preach. Christ. And this is what the need of the hour is. 32 years ago, I drove a rider truck to Lancaster, California. No salary for 16 months. Knocked on 500 doors a week for 16 months. I still knock doors every week and go out soul winning. We had no staff. We had no phone. We had nothing. Nothing. I went to a printer and I said, Listen, I, I need you to make this track, and I wrote it on a yellow pad. Didn't even own a computer. I said, if you'll print this for me, I want 5,000 of them. If you'll print it, I'll come back in a month and pay you. He said, all right, I've never done it before, but I'll do it for you. 30 days later, I came back and paid him and ordered some more. Faithful to the word, faithful to preach God's word, faithful in the areas of separation and godliness and holiness. Not always perfect. We've made mistakes. But 32 years later, I was told just the other day that there have been 35,000 people walk the aisles to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior at the Lancaster Baptist Church. I'm not saying do it like I do it in the pragmatic sense, but I'm saying this. You don't have to put all the emphasis on the world's vibe in order to get the job done. God's Word will get the job done. Someone may say, well, all this talk about the Laodiceans and now you're preaching about repentance and you're you know, saying this about the contemporary church. Where's the grace? I want to show you the grace and then we'll be done. I want you to see the grace, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You want, you want grace? Let me tell you about Grace. Grace is the long-suffering of God when we knuckle-headed pastors are doing it our way. That's God's grace. I don't deserve to be a pastor. 
I don't even deserve to be saved. I deserve a one-way ticket to hell. God in his grace saved me, and God in his grace has enabled me, and God in his grace has called me. And, and when a church that, that belongs to Jesus and has blood-washed believers in the church is becoming filled up with its own riches and its own thoughts and becomes the church of the Laodiceans, the church of the people's rights, now we come to verse 20, and in his grace and his mercy, we see that Jesus is standing outside his own church, and he's knocking on the door of his own church, and, and he's saying, I'd, I'd like to have some fellowship with you in there. Excuse me, if you could turn down the band for a minute, if you could turn off the aerobics class for just a minute, if you could stop showing the video of that singing group, hey, if you could just take a minute and stop what all your programming is over there, I'd like to come in and sup with you, and I'd like to be with you, and we have a choice to make. We can try to copy the best of the other crowd, or we can have a new and fresh anointing of the living God on our churches. We can get so busy programming and running off to the conferences of this group and that group and tweeting about it and tweeting about it. We get so busy with all of that that we can forget to passionately run after God and say, Lord, come in, come in, come in, Lord. Uh, I do repent. I, I need you. And yet this church said we have need of nothing. Can I just encourage you today that every one of us need the Lord. And every one of our churches need the touch of the Lord. And God's counsel to a Laodicean church is very clear. Turn back around and come to me. You're trying all this other stuff. Come back to me. And I pray that there will be a revival of turning to the Lord and seeing him bless our churches once again. We hope this episode has been helpful to you and that you'll subscribe to our podcast. You can connect with Standing Together on Twitter and Facebook, where we hope you will take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and followers. And remember, we'd love to see you at the next Standing Together Ministry Summit on April 1st and 2nd in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. For more information, visit us at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.